Hello, everyone. I wanted to thank all of you who came up to us at ACP this year and introduced yourselves. It was a thrill for us to get to meet so many of our listeners. I wanted to let you know that we will also be at SGIM, which is taking place from May 9th to 11th in Washington, D.C. So look out for us on the 9th and 10th. We'll be there in our red Curbsiders t-shirts. We'll have patches and stickers. We'll be doing interviews and daily recaps similar to what we did for ACP. So please come up and say hello. The Curbsiders Podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of those and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly cash back more hospital and affiliate outreach programs. If indeed there are any, in fact, there are none. Pretty much we are responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're right. Paul, we're back on air. I, we've apparently we've been on air for a minute now, yeah, and I, I didn't know it. we were talking about socks. I a believe. lot of gems. I'm excited for our listeners to hear it. Yeah, and now, that's been our show. So this has been another episode of the Curbsiders. <laughs> this so this is becoming like a yearly tradition now at the ACP meeting. Uh, Alan Dow is back with us. Alan, thank you so much for joining us. My my pleasure to be here for yet another recap show, and we have lots of pearls. We have. We have three correspondents waiting in the wings. Maybe Justin and Shreya will do their shtick again. Dr. Stuart Brigham, is he is on a plane back to wherever he lives. And uh, so he's not, he, we're, he, we're not graced with his presence. But let's get right into this. Alan, I think you have a quiz prepared for us. Is that right? Yeah, well, there's a couple of great pearls that I picked up. And I, I wanted to see you know, how smart the curbsiders were. And so these were, these were little things I learned, but I thought were really cool. So let's start with this one. So in patients who have iron deficiency anemia, what percent have celiac disease? I, I'm going to guess, uh, I, I talked about this before. I always guess either 15% or 85% because at some point someone told me to do it that way. I think this is going to be more towards the 15% range. And I, for the sake of you being able to make the dramatic point, I'm going to go 3%, and then you're going to blow me away because it's going to be substantially higher than that. Okay, are we playing Price is Right rules or not? Yeah, Paul oh, yeah. Paul doesn't know Price is Right, right? Okay. He should have either done 1 or 16, am I right? Well, it, it should have, but but what's interesting is the answer is 9%, so right in the middle between the two of you. Ooh, so wow. you overshot, so I win, is how this works. That's that's how Price is Right is played. Well, you could look at it saying that independently you both were off, but together you were exactly right. Okay. It's kind of our shtick. I'll t- <laughs> <laughs> so the, the cool thing about this to me though is that um i got this question on my my um internal medicine shelf exam i got it on step one step three around doing colonoscopy in patients that have iron deficiency anemia is the sort of next test you do but having heard that that stat and that number and that celiac disease is underdiagnosed and probably becoming more prevalent um, certainly recognizing it more um, that people that have iron deficiency anemia, maybe we should think about doing CELAC testing on all of them as part of our standard workup. So they're getting an upper and a lower for their iron deficiency because you could do the, you could, we talked yeah, about like, this the other day, you could right. talk, you could do the serology, but it, you can't necessarily rule it out if the serology is negative. Yeah, I, I would probably just do the serologies and not do the upper. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, it, you know, you got to look at the patient and see what's going sure. on. But I think at least serologic testing will, will get you that, that 9% either more likely or less likely to where you feel like you need to worry about it more or not worry about it more. Yeah, no, honestly, if the 
colonoscopy doesn't do it and they're solving iron deficiency and even you haven't figured out probably the other endoscopy is happening one way or the other sure. uh, tissue transglutaminase or not yeah good sure. point so the other the other um one that i thought was really interesting was about um uh, inflammatory back pain and so of the patients that have chronic back pain a lot of patients what percent is inflammatory I'm going to I'm going to let Paul guess first. I was at this talk but there was a lot of numbers thrown out so I, I feel like I I'm misremembering but I'll let Paul guess first. And as you were self-diagnosing probably sort of clouded your judgment. <laughs> so I'm I'm going to stick with 3. It's a good solid number. I'm going to guess 5%. Okay, we just talked about prices right. Now, what was you know? <laughs> I should have guessed 1. Okay, I'll guess 1%. No, no, don't. No, wrong, I'll guess wrong direction. All right. All right, I'll guess uh so, so if million? he says three, you, you say 4%. four. And then you have everything above me. This four is... percent. That, that, very good guessing. Did I mention that this is my fourth recording or some sort of... Uh... So what I went with one percent, which I think is a solid number. <laughs> so so the number that was quoted and, and that I wrote down, and so I, I may be misremembering this too, was was 10%. And that's um, important because if you think about all the people in a, say, a primary care practice of 2,000 patients that have chronic back pain, which is you know, a, a fairly large number of that group, 10% are going to have some sort of inflammatory back pain, like a, a spondyloarthritis or something like that. And these diseases, you can treat them fairly well now with um, different biologics. Now, there's a, a sort of risk benefit here because a lot of people with inflammatory back pain don't end up in like an ankylosing spondylitis kind of type of situation where they have debility from it um, in, in terms of, you know, fusions and things like that. But they'll often go on and have uh, surgeries, injections, things like that, that aren't actually helping them because what they really need are, are, are biologics. And so the, the pearl there is to, is to think about this in, in certain patients and, um, and refer them over to rheumatology or do an MRI to try to diagnose it. There were a couple of things in the talk that pointed to inflammatory back pain. So onset younger than age of 45. And because this is an insidious disease, you may have a 55 year old who says, well, I've had back pain for 20 years. Mm -hmm. And so it, it, it's not that they're, the patient is age 45 when they present to you, but that it started before they were 45. And then um, there were two uh, history characteristics that um, had odd ratios of over 20 pointing to inflammatory back pain. The first was it gets better with exercise. So mechanical back pain usually does not get better with exercise, but inflammatory back pain does. Mm -hmm. And does it get better when the person wakes up in the morning and starts to move around? And so that's another thing that gets better with inflammatory back pain, similar to RA, gets better with the morning stiffness going away. Um, and um, mechanical back pain tends to get worse as the day goes on. Have you guys, and I'm sorry to interrupt, but this is something I heard at a completely different talk. Had you heard of this concept of presenteeism? Which I, it's not something that I thought much about. It's, so we think about, a, you know, a little back pain, hugely prevalent. We see it all the time. Um, the number I saw in one of the talks was 12% of adults have low back pain at any given time, which is a bonkers number. Um, but this, so we know about disability, but this idea of presenteeism is you're at work, but you're not performing at your highest ability. So your, your function's impaired. So it's not as dramatic as absenteeism where you can't work, but you're there and you're just not working as well because you have this chronic pain which I thought was an interesting concept that I still don't know quite what to do with. That's, that's a new word. I like that word. It, it's pretty intuitive uh, now that you explain it. That's, what's up next on our quiz here? Well, I, I don't know that I have any more quiz questions uh, per se, but there were a couple other factoids that I think are, are worth um, uh, talking about. So um, recurrent cystitis, um, a new, new uh, medication. It's an over-the-counter medicine for me to, um, to prophylax against recurrent cystitis is D-Manos. So D-M-A-N-N-O-S-E. You can get it over the counter. I looked on Amazon. There it was. Um, there was uh, a randomized control trial, at least one comparing it to nitrofurantoin and placebo. 
and it was more effective than placebo, similar to the nitrofurantoin, um, but but safer. You don't have the risk of antibiotic resistance, and it's cheap. And so you can you can refer patients to get that over the counter as a as a thing to use instead of uh, cranberry extract, which has now fallen out of favor. And nitrofurantoin, you got to worry about pulmonary fibrosis, and there's. Um, yeah, so there's some concerns there. If their EGFR is too low, D-manos sounds like a great option. Because that, uh, when I was formerly working in geriatrics clinic, that was a huge issue. Lots of patients with recurrent UTIs and just didn't know what to do with them, didn't want to pull the trigger on chronic antibiotics. So I'll play the role of steward here um, on Amazon, available anywhere between 10 and $30 for 120 pills. <laughs> That's Thank you, Stuart. So reasonably, oh, don't be hurtful. <laughs> All right, what's up next? Uh, there are a couple of pearls about medical marijuana. Um, so in, in my state of Virginia, we are just getting to having medical marijuana. And like a lot of states, the physician or the prescriber certifies that the patient can get uh, marijuana from a dispensary, goes to the dispensary, and then the dose is titrated, titrated by a pharmacist there who gives them the medicine. Um, and that's not unusual, but all states are a little bit different. And obviously, some don't have um, medical marijuana yet. Um in New Jersey, which has had medical marijuana for about eight years, only 2% of prescribers are actually certified to prescribe. They have, have only have registered with the state to do this. And so there's been very low uptake of this whole medical marijuana process. So that's an interesting thing to keep an eye on. But there were two sort of pharmacologic things that I thought were important that um, I didn't know and something things I wanted to learn about in case it's something I want to do in the future. The first is that medical marijuana has drug interactions with warfarin. And if people aren't taking the medical marijuana regularly, you can think about what that might do to their warfarin levels. And so the person who was speaking out about it actually recommended not using medical marijuana people that have warfarin or switching to a different anticoagulant. So that was that was a good pearl. And then the second was is that the low doses of medical marijuana seem to have more analgesic benefit than higher doses. And so low doses of the tabs are better than higher doses of the tabs and, and certainly better things like smoking where you actually get higher even higher doses of, of marijuana. And so if we're thinking about the idea of marijuana as an opiate sparing therapy that we can use in adjunct for pain, you really want to start low and stay low. Yeah, we I, I th we have plans to do a future episode on the use of mar medical marijuana for pain because in Pennsylvania, Paul, if I'm not, if I'm not mistaken, it's, it's now the same thing. We can prescribe it here. Well, we don't prescribe, we certify. We certify. So same, same situation, and then you go to you know, your dispensary and then the bud tender. But the, Pennsylvania is interesting. I don't think a lot of states necessarily do this, but you have to have a medical professional on site, in which, in this case, most of the time it's a pharmacist. So there actually is a little bit of help in terms of dosing and choosing which, which type of formulation you're going to use. But yeah, we still don't, as prescribers, don't actually prescribe medical marijuana. We just say this person is appropriate for it. Yeah, and I, I still think there's a lot of things that we don't know about this, about what I think there's people that clearly want to be prescribed it, um, but how much is going on in the non-medical market for marijuana already, um, and then how we think about doses and formulations and how to how to do this. So I'm, I'm antsy about it. I mean, the good thing is is that it's a drug that doesn't have a lot of risk, and there's a ton of data around that actually. I, I think that's the reason for the delayed. I know this is not the medical marijuana episode. The delayed sort of uptake and enthusiasm is because we're not actually prescribing. We have no control after we sort of certify we don't know what happens kind of after the point of care so it's just it's a weird it's just a weird process so the big thing i want to talk about was sleep should we should we dive yeah, into it oh, let's dive into it okay yeah. all right I, I i love this so um this was the ananda prasad lecture which the acp has for basic science and it's been great the past couple of years the one about microbiome was excellent last year and i think we talked about this on curbsiders uh speaker this time 
was a guy, um, Colonel retired, uh, Chris Lettieri, um, physician. He's at Uniform Services, um, uh, Health Sciences. And he just has done a lot of thinking about sleep, both in his military role and in his physician role, and, and did a tremendous job of sort of talking about sleep and, and where we are. I think it's probably best to sort of back up first, though, and say, why is sleep important? So it's a good question, right? Very good question. Have you guys ever heard of the glymphatic system? Well, Paul and I were at that. <laughs> Paul and I were at that talk, but never before this talk. This I went to this talk uh, because last year the the Prasad lecture was like raved about. We went to the talk this year because we just we had to see it. And sleep is a is a great topic. Yeah, yeah. And I I had never heard of the glymphatic system before mm-hmm. before either. And and yeah, it was fascinating. So, the glymphatic system is basically your uh, CSF circulatory and toxin removal system for your brain. And this just opened up all sorts of different thoughts in my head. So they, they talk about how it, um, it removes amyloid. And so that may have something to do with you know, people getting Alzheimer's, but also things like glutamate and, and so on and so forth. Um, and then the idea is that the circulation of the glymphatic system increases when you're asleep. So this was interesting to me because I, I, I was, as I was thinking about this, is this because when we go to sleep, something happens in our brain to make that circulation different? Or is it the fact that your head is down? Because hmm. you know, we think about yeah. brain circulation and, and whatnot is that you, you have more circulation to your brain when you're lying and, and all the, the regulatory stuff. And we also know that when people go into outer space, they need less sleep. Uh, and I've heard that stat before and I was like, huh, that's interesting. I wonder why that, that is true. So maybe there's something with low gravity that would make us say that there's something with the glymphatic system. Anywho, so... The glymphatic system, new to all three of us, so really, really cool thing to to learn about. Um, why this is such a pressing area now is because across the United States, we're sleeping an hour and a half to two hours less per night over the past 40 years. We've just seen this tremendous reduction in sleep, which probably has to do with cultural changes and, and whatnot. But we are just a sleep-deprived population, not just, not just medical residents and maybe attendings, but, um, but also the sleep deprivation, uh, over the past 40 years. And I don't know what you guys sort of just thought about those general trends or not. I think there's, I think there's a lot of reasons for them. Modern life. He was talking about whoever the person is that figured out you have less traffic. If you, if you, instead of getting to work at nine, you get to work at eight. And then that's just kind of ratcheted up and people are binge watching. People are on smartphones all the time. There's just so many assaults on sleep and demands on our time. It, it feels, it's hard. As someone who knows about this, he was saying you need seven and a half to nine hours of sleep a night, uh, more if you're an elite athlete, but seven and a half to nine hours for an adult. And I, I think most adults don't get that. And some people pride themselves on that. And he made points about how they, they're probably fooling themselves. Did you ask him about elite podcasters and how much sleep they need per night? <laughs> no. But he even raised, and I, I, I must have heard about it in this context before, but it's just not something I thought about recently. That I think I just kind of think about sleep as the absence of wakefulness as opposed to this sort of dynamic process that happens in opposition to being awake. And so thinking about sleep drive versus wake drive and the, the things they sort of counterbalance each other and how they actually work, I thought that was actually just in terms of framing the entire discussion, I thought was a really helpful way to think about it. Yes. So I'm a nap guy. Do you guys like naps? I d- I rarely get to take them, but the, the military taught me 30 minute power naps. Like they, they actually truncate the naps at 30 minutes and the pilots, it's very high tech the way the pilots do it. So I, I would start referring to them as glymphatic restoration moments. 
<laughs> uh, that's good. I like that. Yeah, GRMs, you can, you can, you can work with that. Feels very military. That is a nice. His, he started the talk off basically by, like, he, he basically said, um, you will never have the response to the therapies that you're using if you ignore sleep. And, and his point was that sleep is at the center of everything. And then the whole talk was like data on diabetes, like metabolic syndromes are worse. Your cardiovascular health is worse. Your cognition is worse. Your morals are worse. And he used the line like, you're going to be, well, I don't know if you have it. Do you have it written down verbatim? I think I have it here. It's, I got it. it's if you don't get enough sleep, you'll be fat, dumb, and no one will like you. Yeah. yeah and, and I think um, just to enumerate some of those those health effects a little bit, because you're exactly right. So um, your your prefrontal cortex atrophies and the effects on complex thinking from sleep deprivation short term can last at least two months. And I just thought that was amazing to think about all the sleep deprivation you go through as, as training and as a young parent and, and whatnot. And as far as they had tracked it out, which was only two months, it seemed to, to stick around. And, and that's amazing. Yes. He said it was like analogous to smoking. Like, you know, you, you don't ever get it all the way back. It's just kind of slow the rate of decline, which is horrifying. I, I completely agree. I completely agree. And then the links with uh, the links with dementia, that's got that's got me really scared. To me, that's my biggest bargaining chip. Like I need to get as much sleep I can for the rest of my life uh, w- within that seven and a half to nine parameter to make sure because I, I obviously don't want dementia. That's like the most terrifying thing. Yeah, I started to wonder how good I could be if I had actually gotten sleep over the past 20 right. years. Right. Yeah, I'd be psychic. I could go on about sleep more. We uh, we probably should do a whole sleep episode at some point. So uh, do you have any other like big pearls from the conference you want to talk about or you just want to mix it up? We'll bring in some uh, correspondence. Uh, I, I think the one other thing that I would say about sleep is is just I think there's a question of what we can do about it. And and you were starting to start to reference this. He, he said that, that none of the medications are really ones he recommends. You can try melatonin. It doesn't have a lot of toxicity, but is, is fine. But the best thing to do to help your patients is, is cognitive behavioral therapy. And there are some free online modules through the VA. If you Google VA CBTI, you can find one that you can give for free to your patient right. to treat insomnia. Um, and then I think we have to start thinking really seriously about what is happening with training more than we have because he, he showed the data that with work hours surgery residents went from sleeping 5.6 hours a night to 5.7 hours a night and that the rate of uh, motor vehicle crashes went from 40 percent a year to 16 percent a year and you can sort of say oh look there's 0.1 more hours of sleep and and the car crashes went down significantly but still 16% of residents getting in a car crash a year is just is shocking to me. Yeah. I mean that 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 number needed to not get a car crash is <laughs> you know it seems like it can't be that, that good for for much sleep changes. It it's one of the yeah, it's an important topic. I so we definitely we definitely need to explore further on a on a future episode. Uh why don't we bring in Emmy Okamoto with some dermatology pearls? Yes, thank you. I was at the pre-conference day doing a whole day of dermatology, so it took away a lot of great stuff. Um, first, there was actually a whole lecture on not the active ingredient of what we prescribe, but the vehicle, thinking about the tube size and the duration of treatment. As for the vehicle, uh, the main ones we prescribe are lotions, creams, and ointments. Lotions are aqueous and easier to spread. Patients tend to like them better. They are a bit more irritating. So for babies and kids, we often use ointments, which are oil-based. 
Um, they're a little harder to spread, but there is more rapid absorption. She also mentioned not using powdered powders if the skin is not intact. So often we put uh, ketoconazole on intertrigo, say in the breast area when there's, there's skin breakdown. But she said that's a lot like putting sand in a wound because it's powder. So you want to look for something that is more of a lotion or cream for that. On sunscreen, so summer is coming around and we should be looking for sunscreens with SPFs 30 or better. The literature mostly talks about 15 being okay, but most people don't uh, put on sunscreen the way that they do in the studies. So look for an SPF 30 or better. Uh, that only applies to UVB rays, so you also need the bottle to say broad spectrum, which means that it also covers UVA rays. And look for the label of water resistance if you're going to go into the water. Um, she does recommend it buying it yearly, which is something I don't do. <laughs> um, as for tinea cruris, so that's jock itch. And when we see this, you should always be looking for tinea pettis. So think about how you put your undergarments on. And so if you got tinea cruris, you should be looking at feet as well to make sure that they haven't slid the, the fungus up. So that's something to... That's a... I'd never thought about that mechanism. That's... That makes sense. I'll, I'll buy it. Yes. Or put your socks on first. Or you could get like a romper. I mean, that's one thing. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of good options here. Yes. Paul's famous for his rompers for my at, love of rompers, at the beach. Know. I then went to a lecture about more systemic diseases and, and derm manifestations. So pyoderma gangrenosum is something that we, we do see fairly often. Um, it often begins as a pustule and rapidly expands over a matter of days. Now, often these people come to the ER and it's confused as necrotizing fasciitis. And this is something you don't want to do. Because if you bring pyoderma gangrenosum to the OR to get debrided, that will cause pathergy, which means that the PG lesion will get worse when you cause it more trauma. So the way to distinguish it is by looking at the patient. So PG is related with IBD and malignancies, and the patients may look somewhat ill and have a mild fever, but they won't look sick or toxic. Whereas neck fash, they'll be coming in. If they're not already in shock, they'll be looking like they're heading there quickly within hours. Um, another great thing I took home was dermatomyositis. So we think of the shawl sign, the Gotrans papule, and they'll often have a facial rash, which is actually indistinguishable in many times um, from uh, the malar rash of lupus. So even under a microscope, those things can look the exact same. So what you want to look for in those patients is looking at the eyelids, because while both are photosensitive, um, you can see in dermatomyositis, you can see the heliotrope sign, which is covering the entire eyelids and not just the sun-exposed areas. You'll also look at the naso nasolabial folds, which are spared in lupus, but not in dermatomyositis. These patients, one in five, will go on to develop pulmonary fibrosis, so you should be checking PFTs in them. And one in five will also have cancer, although there's no great guidelines out there for exactly what screening should be done and how often. As for uh, other great conference material, I went to a talk on immigrant health. 
In the U.S. population, about 2% of people uh, have under a ninth grade education. But when we look at immigrants, it's about 30% of undocumented immigrants. So we really should be keeping in that in mind when we care for these patients. As well, we see a lot of immigrants from countries where they practice torture. Um, of those immigrants, 6 to 12% will have experienced trauma. And of general asylum seekers in the U.S., anywhere from 20 to 40% of those will have experienced trauma. And so we need to be thinking about uh, kind of trauma-informed care, which is just being very cognizant about what they've been through, particularly when it comes to procedures like ordering imaging or doing a pap smear. Yeah, and, and there's a, a great book that I've read recently about that. Uh, it was actually the, the VCU common book that we read at my institution across. It's called Tell Me How It Ends, an Essay in 40 Questions by Valerie Luiselli. And uh, it's only about 150 pages. It's a, it's, I read it in one sitting in part because it was short, but in part because it was so engrossing. And it talks about the trauma that these people um, go through in, in making this this journey. And um, I just think it's it's an issue to think about and an issue that probably impacts us more than we think in terms of uh, human trafficking because people are really reluctant to access any kind of, of services that might put them on the radar of the government. Emmy, can I ask you a follow-up question? Yes. D when the trauma-informed care, I, I'm not familiar with that, so how, what would I practically do as the clinician if I had an undocumented person that I'm taking care of? Sure. So you just want to make sure to take you know, more time with them, whereas things might seem obvious and routine before you order a CT scan, say, to look at a lesion. You have to recognize that a lot of these people are claustrophobic, have a lot of underlying psychiatric problems, they have a lot of PTSD. So taking the time to explore that, often these patients can be labeled as non-adherent. And so recognizing kind of that that's our problem that we need to look more deeply as to what is going on and what is their barriers to care. You know, the, the language and the culture is one thing, but there's also a whole lot of uh, experiences that they've had that learning about that can help us guide them better through the medical system. It sounds like a good way to go about it might be to describe the procedure to them, ask if they have any questions or concerns, and then just explore those concerns and the reasons for them. And you might hit on some of these things. Mm-hmm. Yes. Great. Thank you. And then uh, do we have uh, Justin and, and or Shreya, preferably both of you? Hey. We're coming as a team. Yeah. I was Hi trying energy. to give a name for us, like Dr. Shrey and JB, like JB. Shreby. Justin Timberlake and, and Dr. Shrey Dre. Burke. Yeah, I don't know. We'll work on it. We'll workshop it. Shreby sounds like some sort of <laughs> infection, <laughs> which you should treat with an ointment, not a lotion. We got, Please. We got Shreby's. <laughs> I think I just put you on contact. <laughs> Sorry, the news isn't good. It's it's oh my goodness. Yeah, let us know if you guys have a name for us. We are welcoming uh, welcoming uh, ideas. I, th I think you missed it. It's Shrabies. Yeah, yeah, that, we got it. That's, I'm, we're locked in. Really excited about that stitching. Really excited about that. <laughs> oh, good. my goodness. Can I get that Twitter handle real quick? Yeah. <laughs> Make it a hashtag. No. Um, Justin. Yes, Shrabies. I have some questions for you. Wonderful. I'm here to, I'm here to answer. Okay. Let's talk about heart failure with reduced EF. Love talking about heart failure with reduced EF. Half the patient list on uh, any hospital So channel. many patients. Um, we need to diurese our heart failure patients. Yes. Off our list. <laughs> well, before that, I got some questions for you. Great. So our patients with heart failure and reduced EF, mm. is it true 
you know, all their meds that they're on beta blocker, that ACE, that spironolactone. Is it true that I have to uptitrate all of them? What a phenomenal question, Shreya. Uh, this was actually a great question in the HEFREF uh, conversation today with Dr. Yancey in one of his sessions. And it turns out um, that some medicines need to be uptitrated more aggressively. So lisinopril or ACE inhibitors uh, are not shown to have a dose response in treating HEFREF. So a low dose of lisinopril is fine. Same with spironolactone. Actually, it's shown to be helpful at doses that are subtherapeutic for hypertension. So just like 25 milligrams of spironolactone. But for beta blockers, there is a dose response. So uh, per Dr. Yancey, one of the, the big wigs here at ACP conference, uh, recommends uptitrating the beta blocker as tolerated as being your priority. To heart rate of? Um, I believe uh, less than 60 if they have anginal components, but really just as long as they'll tight, uh, tolerate it. Awesome. Okay. So say we're like, we're on top of it. Our patient yep. with heart failure with reduced EF, they're on all their meds. Um, they do really well. They e- their EF recovers. Mm. Their EF is 60%. We're happy. Yeah. Is it true that they can stop their meds now? It's another phenomenal question, Shreya. And this happens to me all the time where all my patients are always just constantly getting better because of medication adherence. Um, <laughs> With these patients, uh, you do have to tread lightly, uh, tread lightly, uh, because based in a Lancet 2018 trial, the Tread HF trial, they took these patients that had recovered EFs, took them off their uh, CHF medicines to see how they did, and about 40% within eight weeks started having symptoms, started having decreased mm-hmm. EF again. So the kind of bottom line from that study is that the EF has not fully recovered. It's more that these patients are in remission, but still have HEFREF. So the medications need to stay on. That's um, all good stuff. Do you have some questions for me, Justin? Uh, I do. Um, I, have some, uh, I do have some questions for you, Shreya. First question, because I know that uh, as someone who is passionate about the humanities and about, um, you know, really patient-centered conversations and, and kind of the broad art side of medicine, um, what's the new definition of pulmonary hypertension based on the <laughs> World <laughs> Symposium? Six World Symposium of uh, Pulmonary Hypertension that came out early this year. That's a great question, Justin. There is a new cutoff. Um, the thing to know is that the mean pulmonary artery pressure of greater than 20 millimeters per mercury now counts as pulmonary hypertension. This is different from the old definition or the old cutoff, which was 25 millimeters per mercury. That's amazing. And that's, that's what the fifth World Symposium had, right? And that was, that was the one where he fought the Russian and Apollo died. Uh-huh. Yep. It's a Philadelphia joke. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. That's uh, right. That's all for now. (laughs) One other quick pearl that I actually, uh, that also came out of this pulmonary hypertension talk that is is worth sharing. Um, First, that the one thing we all know, these pulmonary hypertension medicines are really for type one. So slidinophil, the prostacyclines don't work for the type two or type three pulmonary hypertensions. But one thing that I learned and hasn't really discussed, and I'm going to make a fool out of myself when pronouncing this name, but there's a medication Riosiduat, which is a guanate cyclase stimulator that Paul is nodding, so he has some familiarity with maybe. Uh, but it is an approved uh, treatment that has had some evidence in patients with CTEF or group 4 pulmonary hypertension if they're not good surgical candidates. So that was my final pulmonary hypertension pearl. And I'm not sure if you're aware that you did this, but um, you said tread, and then it was like the tread trial, which I thought was. Thank you. Yeah. No, that was, yeah, that was intentional. Masterful. That was good. Appreciate that. <laughs> Amazing. Positive feedback. <laughs> um, yeah, thanks. I think Shreba has a future. I mean, I, I yeah. really do. <laughs> okay. Thank you for that wonderful case of Shrebies that you just gave <laughs> the, the whole audience here. 
I seem to have developed a smoker's cough during this episode, Paul. <laughs> it's probably the shrabies. It's probably... It's not... There's no coming back from it. Yeah, pulmonic shrabies is the worst kind. <laughs> I think we should just end there. Yep. Okay. See, I'm serious. Yeah. All right. No outro? <laughs> outro. This has been another episode of The Curbsiders. Bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy. I, it's still upsetting. Get show notes at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast. Probably not this time around. And sign up for our mailing list at thecurbsiders.com forward slash knowledge food to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. We're committed to providing you with high value practice changing knowledge. But to do that, we need your feedback. So please send an email to thecurbsiders at gmail.com or subscribe, rate, and review the show on iTunes. You can also reach out on our various channels, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, etc. And I'd like to thank our social media team and all our correspondents who helped out with this episode. Chris Chu, who has been furiously snapping video or very busy. photos and videos. He's been very busy as the master of ceremonies for this ACP conference. And uh, we have to give him a huge thanks for helping to coordinate all that. And of course, I got to thank this. Uh, Cyrus Askin was pinch hitting on Twitter for this conference. So thank you to him. Thanks, as always, to Hannah Abrams, who made some great templates for us. Beth Garbs Garbatelli on Instagram, Chris the Chew Man Chew on Facebook. Uh, it's been a lot of fun. So I want to thank all the audience members, uh, listeners who came up to us, and we're really grateful for the show that we're putting on. That helps keep us going because uh, it is tiring at times, <laughs> but incredibly rewarding. Paul, did you have anything you'd like to say? No, it, I mean, it really is a pleasure meeting the listeners and, and hearing that they enjoy the show and, and saying nice things about us. It's who doesn't like a compliment. So it's been a lot of fun and emotionally and physically exhausting. If Stuart would, could be here, I know he'd be saying the same. Something completely off topic, probably, about <laughs> something he saw on Amazon. Uh, yeah, a quick story. On the first <laughs> night of the... On the first night of the conference, I I searched hashtag I am 2019, and the top tweet at the time was Daryl and Moyer, the uh, executive vice president of the ACP, tweeting a photo saying, I saw this guy always dressed fashionable or something like that, and it was Stuart in a curbsider shirt and a ridiculous hat and pants outfit, uh, which made me laugh very hard. So thank you for that moment, Stuart and Dr. Moyer. So uh, I guess until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto. And I remain Dr. Paul Nelson Williams. Chris, go ahead, buddy. I'm Christopher the Chew Man Chew. Thank you and goodbye. made a conscious decision i think i'm going to define myself by my socks starting next week (laughs) so so if you wear just like black socks does that mean you're you're an old man i mean that's Uh, they have to be with the garters too otherwise it's it's okay because it might be a u-shaped curve it's like (laughs) under under 40 you wear colorful socks and over 60 but you know i'm in that that nader now where it's just it's just not exciting socks i think whatever works for you i think that's what you should i no, i think it's terrible advice i well, because if, if I start wearing the young socks, it might look like I'm trying to be something that I'm not. Yeah. You know, either. I've started recording already. This socks. 60 stuff or less killer. than 40. <laughs> A lot of good pearls. This is going to go up on Twitter. All right.
I hate everything about this conversation. <laughs> <laughs>